Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather and to learn from your word, Lord. Um, it's very easy for us maybe to be distracted or excited about good football yesterday or who knows what. Um, but Lord, right now, we want to we wanna focus on your word. We want to sing to you. We want you to draw us closer to you. And so, Father, I pray as we, as we dive into Genesis 32, as we think about idolatry and we think about the hope that, that really matters, Jesus, I pray that you would help us. And Spirit, just, just flow freely in our midst and teach us all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we've been in the middle of this, uh, this series called Idol Factory, The Empty Promises of money and power and sex. And really what we've been doing is looking at these Old Testament narratives uh, where idolatry meets us more where we are. Because sometimes when we think about the word idol, we, we think about a statue, right? Like, oh, he's an I- idolater. I mean, maybe you think American Idol or something like that. But sometimes we think, oh, Baal or, or Buddha or something like that. And you go, I'm not an idolater. I don't burn incense to a statue. You know, I don't bow down before anything that's, that's not my, my deal. But actually, in these stories in the Old Testament, we've been seeing that from the beginning, uh, all of humanity has been tempted to make idols out of oftentimes more tangible things to our lives, things like money and things like power or the right job or the perfect relationship. And, and that's a problem, the Bible says, because, uh, you know, the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. And so we're all prone to idolatry, and that's what we've been looking at through all these Old Testament narratives. And, and this, this whole series, Chris mentions this every week, and I want to mention it as well, um, we're basing it on Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. So some of the content's coming from there. We're not trying to plagiarize. We just want you to know on the front end that's what's going on here. But he says in the book, this is how he defines an idol. He says, an idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. So we begin looking to these things, oftentimes good things, like a relationship or like a job or like money, things that are not at all bad, but they're bad when we take a good thing and we begin to make it a God thing. Does that make sense? We begin to say, I need that thing to fulfill me. If I don't have that thing, I will not be whole. I need that for my life to matter or to count. And this, this uh, title of the series, Idol Factory, it actually comes from a, a quote by John Calvin. And John Calvin said this. He says, our minds or our hearts, so to speak, are a perpetual forge or factory of idols. In other words, because we're fallen, because we're, we're ancestors of Adam and Eve who sinned, you and I have been born with a sin nature, and that sin nature tends to crave Idols, it tends to want to put other things in the place where God's supposed to be. We just do it naturally. It flows out of us. But it's actually way more dangerous than we could ever imagine and can lead to awful things in our lives. And so God wants to fix this idol problem. Uh, Blaise Pascal said it this way. You may have heard this quote. Blaise Pascal, famous mathematician, but also a follower of Jesus. He said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. And St. Augustine said something similar. He said, 
Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in You. So that's, that's what we're studying. Now, today we're going to begin looking at the end to the idol factory. How do we cure this problem? There is a cure. And we're going to do that by studying uh, a great story, a perplexing, weird story in Genesis 32. So I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn to Genesis 32. We're going to read this chapter together. If you'd like a copy of God's Word uh, to follow along with, you can follow along on the screen. But if you'd like one in hand, if you raise your hand, our ushers would be glad to bring you one. Just kind of leave it up. They'll see you, and they'll give you a copy. Um, and you can read along with us. But we're going to read this whole narrative together. Now, don't be scared. Just kind of leave them up. Um, and, uh, and as you turn, we're, we're going to get ready to lead to read. Now, uh, we've already, this story is about Jacob, the patriarch, and we've already studied a little bit about him. We're going to touch on that. Uh, but, but this passage that we're looking at today is a, a pivotal point in his life. Let's, let's read together. Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau's brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Now remember for a second before we continue to read. Jacob stole a blessing from Esau, his brother. His brother wanted to kill him, and so he fled and went and hung out for years with his uncle Laban. And there he got married uh, twice uh, and had a bunch of kids and has grown rich, and now he is returning home. Okay, but he doesn't, there weren't cell phones, there weren't email. He doesn't know what's going on with Esau. He just knows the last time he left Esau, Esau wanted to kill him. And so now he's returning home. And so he sends this message ahead. Hey, I'm coming. He's trying, to, he's trying to test the waters. Okay, look at the response. And the messengers returned to Jacob, this is verse 6, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. That's ominous. Uh, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, he divided the people who are with them and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then that camp that is left will escape. So he said, let's divide up and, and diversify assets here if we can, maybe confuse him. And then he says a prayer. And Jacob said, O God, my father of Abraham, uh, of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he prays this prayer to God, says, God, I need your help. And then he does this. So he, he stayed there that night, 
And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. He says, I'm going to do some more just practical things here to try to ward off what may be coming. So he says, uh, I'm going to give him a present. So he took, listen to this present, by the way, uh, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between uh, drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks, to whom do these belong? What, what are all these animals, dude? Where are you going? And who's, our, who's ahead of you? He says, then you should say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are present sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he's behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. Everybody with us? Now, then this, this happens. This is where we're really focusing. This is crazy. Same night, so he does all that. Then he gets back up out of bed. Verse 22. He rose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. So he kind of creates another, like, subgroup, like a third group, with this, his family and his kids. And his concubines. And they're actually ahead of him. And then he's last. They go across the river, which is the way they're growing. He's left. And the text says, and he's left alone. Verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. He touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint. As he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. A lot of reading. Cool story. What does that have to do with us? Well, I want to point out three things. I want to point out Jacob's striving. I want to point out Jacob's dilemma. And I want to point out Jacob's wrestling. Okay? So we're just going to go through those together. Um, Jacob is returning to his homeland. This is number one. Jacob's striving. And there's, again, a big problem because he had, he'd messed over his brother. 
He had stolen his father's birthright last time he'd seen him. Esau said, I'm going to come kill you. His mom said, boy, you, you better get out of here. Go to, go to my brother Laban and hang out there because I, I think he's really going to try to kill you. So he left, he says, with only his staff, and he's gone for, I don't know, 20 years. He's gone for a long time. And now he's coming back. And why is he coming back? He's coming back because things with Laban had gotten pretty tense. He actually, when he got to Laban, um, you know, Laban uh, didn't treat him very well. And he quickly fell in love with Laban's daughter, uh, Rachel. And she, according to the Bible, was a looker. And so immediately he's kind of like, I want to marry her. And, and so he agrees to work seven years for the chance to marry her. And uh, that was, he was overpaying. He was a little love struck. And he was being taken advantage of. But his, his uncle was like, yeah, oh, sure, seven years, sounds great. You know, and so he works the seven years. And then um, at the end of the seven years, his uncle tricks him. Uh, Jacob's a bit of a trickster. His uncle is a bit of a trickster. His uncle trips, uh, tricks him. And apparently there's a heavy veil, so he didn't really know who he's marrying. So uh, he spent the first night with his new bride and woke up and found out that it was not Rachel. It was Leah. And he had actually married and consummated the marriage with somebody other than the person he thought he was going to marry. He's furious. And um, so he says, I want to marry Rachel. And his uncle says, sure, you know, work another seven years, you got it. And so he does. And so by the end of this time, and there's a lot of story we don't have time to cover, he's coming back with uh, two wives, two concubines, 12, 12 boys, and, and a girl, Dinah, and a bunch of servants, and God made him rich. And and, but, but things with Laban have been tense the whole time. And so he's got to get out of there. It's coming to a breaking point. He says, I, I need to get out of here. And then on top of that, it actually says uh, that God, God told him, hey, go back to your homeland. So that's why he's on this journey. He's going back to his homeland, right? And, and if, we, if we examine Jacob's life, his whole life could be described as a, a, a striving. He's looking for meaning. He wants to be something. From, from the time that he was a little boy, his, his father preferred his brother. He was a twin. This is his twin brother that he messed over. T- twin brother Esau. And, and from the time he was a little boy, Esau, they apparently weren't identical twins. And so they looked differently. And his, his brother Esau is, is hairy and a hunter and a man's man. And his daddy loves his brother Esau. He likes Jacob. Jacob's more of his mama's son. He doesn't go out and hunt. Soft guy. He would be a computer programmer, maybe. You know, he's that, he's that sort of guy. He's just, he's, he's hanging out indoors. And, and, and all day long, like all his life, he wants his father's approval. He's deeply wounded that he doesn't have his father's approval. And so there's this family blessing where his father's getting ready to die and he's going to pass over the blessing to the boys. And in, in that culture and in those customs, you know, the oldest inherited two-thirds of the wealth and the, the younger inherited a third of the wealth. And then there was a special blessing that was put upon the older. And so and mom's actually in on this. They fooled dad, who's losing his eyesight and near death, into pronouncing the blessing on Jacob rather than Esau. Jacob dresses up. He puts fur on his arms. I don't know how that worked, but... 
dad was apparently pretty far gone. And he, he puts fur on his arms, and, and he wears his brother's clothes, and he smells like his brother, and I guess he probably kind of disguised his voice. And so his father pronounces this blessing that was intended for Esau on Jacob. And it's like Jacob just desperately wanted his father's approval. This is what Tim Keller says. He said, why did Jacob steal Esau's blessing? Modern readers find his motives difficult to understand. Surely Jacob know his ruse would be discovered quickly and that Isaac would never have actually given Jacob the majority of the family's wealth. All Jacob got was the ceremonial affirmation. Why did he lose so much to gain so little? Tim Keller. I believe it was because Jacob, even under false pretenses, longed to hear his father say, I delight in you more than anyone else in the world. And he goes on to say, every human being then needs blessing. We all need assurance of our unique value from some outside source. The love and admiration of those you most love and admire is above all rewards. We are looking for this deep admiration, looking for it from our parents, our spouse, and our peers. So Jacob fled after that incident because, again, his brother wanted to kill him. And he goes and he falls head over heels in love with this beautiful woman. And, and it's like he, he moves from looking for his father's approval to, to fill him to looking for her approval to fill him. So, again, Tim Keller, Jacob's life was empty. He never had his father's love. He had lost his beloved mother's love because she had died. And he certainly, and he had left. And he certainly had no sense of God's love and care. Then he beheld the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. And he must have said to himself, if I had her, finally something would be right in my miserable life. If I had her, it would fix things. All the longings of his heart for meaning and affirmation were fixed on Rachel. His whole life was striving to feel loved, to feel like he was good enough, to feel like he meant something. And we can all feel this to a certain extent, can't we? We think maybe you come from a broken home, maybe you come from less than ideal parents. And you know this, this feeling to have your parents or your father say they love you. And it's, it's wounded you. Some of us are divorced. Most of us, if we've lived long enough, have been through a heart-wrenching breakup of some sort. And it just feels like the floor dropped out underneath us because we lost this person and they were our everything. They had begun to be a God thing in our life. We're tempted to believe if I just got this house or if I just got this promotion or if we just lived here, then I would finally have it. Whatever it is. It's a lie. I'm reminded of this story. I think we talked about it when we were studying David. It's one of David's sons. And one of his sons falls deeply in love, or sounds more like lust, with one of his half-sisters. And he goes, I, I, need, I need her. I need to be with her. 
And so he, he doesn't think the family will allow it, and so he concocts this whole thing, and he ends up raping her. He wants to be with this sister so bad that he ends up raping his sister. And then the Bible says, immediately after he shamed her, violated her, it says immediately the, the, he hated her, and the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And we sometimes feel that too. We get that thing that we think is going to finally be it, and it's like, this is not satisfying. So Jacob was striving, but now he's in a dilemma. That's the second movement in the text I want you to see. And again, he's going home, and he tests the waters. And so he first sends this this envoy. Hey, look at the text again. Uh, Verse 3. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau's brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing him. Listen to what he says. Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I've sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I, I have plenty, man. I'm not here to try to take away any of the family wealth. He had left all that. All he'd gotten was you know, the blessing, and then ran. And so now he says, he he wants things to be right. You're the Lord Esau. I'm your servant, Jacob. But you can tell when you read this text, he's scared to death. And and then then even even one commentator says, you know, like, the, the servants return. They don't say anything like, hey, he's happy to see you. All they say is, he didn't say anything, but he's coming here with 400 men. And the the way that Moses writes this, we think Moses wrote Genesis, the way that Moses writes this, there's tension in the text. It's supposed to leave us hanging. Like, what's going to happen? Right? Gordon Winham, the messenger's return is eerie. They, they bring no reply from Esau, but simply report that he is on his way with 400 men. The brevity makes for ambiguity. Is Esau coming to wage war or to receive his brother warm, uh, royalty? royally? Is he planning an attack? Why allow the messengers to return unharmed if you're going to attack? Allowing Jacob to prepare himself? That doesn't make a lot of sense. So what's going on here? Or does Esau feel so superior that he is prolonging Jacob's agony before striking the final blow? The suspense is heightened. And you get the feeling that that Jacob had a lot of wives and and a lot of kids and a lot of animals, but maybe he didn't have like 400 men. He had some men. Esau's coming with 400 men. So he's freaked out. And so he sends a gift. He actually sends five envoys of gifts. And this is both, I think, to, to butter his brother up and maybe slow his brother down, right? There's a bunch of animals now all of a sudden with Esau and his 400 men. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, that's envoy number one. Then 200 ewes and 20 rams, that's envoy number two. Then envoy number three, 30 milking camels. Then envoy number four, 40 cows and 10 bulls. And that was five. Then envoy number five, can't count with my hand, uh, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. And every time one of them meets Esau and his men, they... Uh, What's this about? Where are all these animals? These are from Jacob. They're present for, for you. He's behind us. It happens again and again and again. And, and this was the currency of the day. This is probably millions of dollars. This, this is a big gift. 
splits the people, sends the gifts. And he wakes up in the middle of the night, sends his family across the river, and he's left last alone. And, and there's a way of reading the text where it almost feels like God is setting Jacob up. Doesn't it feel like that? Hey, Jacob, go home. And then he's going home. And it's like, what in the world is happening? My brother's going to kill me. He's going to kill my wives. He's going to kill my kids. I'm going to be left destitute. Now, God had promised I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless you. But it sure feels like God's setting him up. You ever felt like that? You ever feel like the circumstances of my life are working out in such a way, like, God, I thought you were saying this, but this is happening. Like, what is going on? I feel like you're against me. I feel like you're setting me up. I mean, K.A. Matthews, one of the commentators I read, actually says, Jacob has no other avenue of escape. Is it not God who really has cornered him? Well, it gets worse. Because the third movement in the text is that Jacob wrestled. Let's read this again. Beginning at verse 22. That same night he arose and took his wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. So they're like this group behind the two groups and all the animals. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So Jacob moves the family, and that almost seems weird. I don't know if he's being chicken by putting them ahead of him and him being last, or if he's saying, like, maybe if he sees all the animals and then he sees my family, he'll have more. That's how I kind of tend to read it. Maybe he'll, he'll see them and he'll go, I don't need to kill my brother Jacob. Later on, he actually goes in front of his family. But right now, it, it almost seems like, He's like, I'm, I'm going to be last, and we're going to try to butter him up in every way that we can possibly think. And then he's left alone in the dark, apparently so dark that he can't see the man's face. And he's attacked by what the, the text calls a man. Now, anybody wrestled? I wrestled one year. I wasn't very good <laughs> one year. Eighth grade. Got in shape. Always been a little pudgy side. It helped. Enjoyed it. Stunk at it. Stunk at wrestling. <laughs> Got pinned every match. Uh, all, one, I won because the guy didn't show up. Uh, <laughs> wrestling is exhausting. All night, 
all night long? I mean, he can't see who he's wrestling. For all he knows, this is Esau. All he knows is, all of a sudden, the family's on the other side of of the Jabbok River, and he's alone, without moonlight, apparently, and he gets, he gets attacked and wrestles. and re- You can imagine the exhaustion. Because th- this isn't like a story to teach us a lesson. This is like a real history. Like this really happened. So Jacob really is wrestling with what the text calls a man all night long. And then it says, and this is weird, right? It says, um, when the man saw that he could not prevail or did not prevail against Jacob, then what does this mysterious man do? He just touches Jacob's hip socket. That's a pretty strong joint. And immediately his hip goes out of joint. And he keeps wrestling. But that clued Jacob in all of a sudden like, I'm not wrestling with Esau. Who am I wrestling with? That was supernatural. And then as daybreak is coming, the man says, you need to let me go. You know, he doesn't want Jacob to see his face. Why? Here's what Tim Keller says. He says, the figure insisted he must leave as dawn neared. Why? Well, Jacob knew that no one could look upon God's face and live. And afterwards, Jacob realized that this was the reason the wrestler had wanted to leave before the sun came up. It was for Jacob's own protection. For as Jacob said, he saw God's face and lived. So this is Jesus, the angel of the Lord. This is some man who is God or or represents God. And Jacob's wrestling with God. And then he does the most absurd thing possible. As he begins to realize that he is wrestling with God because his hip's just been put out of joint with a a simple touch, and and the man's saying, let me go, because I don't want you to die. Look at me and die. Jacob clings on even tighter. And he says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. Scott Saul says this about Jacob. He says, Jacob is a picture in this story of what we might call a nominal believer. He affirms all the creeds. He quotes the promise, because he quoted the promise to God. Remember, like, sand, as many descendants, as many as the sand on the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky. Remember, God, you're going to bless me. They're like, that's what Abraham said. That's my granddad, God. Just see, like, I need your help now. He quotes the promise. He's heard it all his life that God delivered to his grandpa Abraham that through you and your descendants the world would be healed. He's an orthodox believer. He affirms that creed, but he is a functional atheist. Instead of living by faith, Jacob calculates and manages outcomes. He he is a, a bit of a conniver. His name actually means deceiver. And at this moment, it's like he finds salvation. He wakes up and he goes, I need a blessing from God. 
And so Tim Keller says it this way. Jacob was saying something like this. What an idiot I've been. Here's what I've been looking for all my life, the blessing of God. I looked for it in the approval of my father. I looked for it in the beauty of Rachel, but it was in you. Now I won't let you go, God, and unless you bless me. Nothing else matters. I don't care if I die in the process because if I don't have God's blessing, I've got nothing. Nothing else will do. God, please bless me. You are what I most need. It says in James, I love this verse. James is talking about the people of God drawing back near to God. And it says in James 4, 5, or 5, 5, it says, Do you suppose that it is for no reason that the Scripture says that He, that He is God, God yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? You see, God did set Jacob up. But He set him up so that he could show him what his heart really needed. And he wrestled with him. And he said, I need you to wake up. I need you to be scared to death so you will wake up and realize, Jacob, that you don't need the love of a wife or the approval of a father or many sheep and goats as much as you need me. That's what you really need. You need me. You, I am what your heart has been craving your whole life. And Jacob finally got it. And he said, I'm not letting go of you until you bless me. You see, coming into relationship with Jesus is basically that. He said, I'm not letting go of God until he blesses me. I'm not letting go of God until he gives me salvation. And something interesting happens in the text. Like, how does, how does this blessing and this holding on to God happen? Well, the man... He says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And then the man, God, says, what's your name? Now, what's the significance of that? Well, his name means deceiver. And by, by saying his name out loud, it's kind of like he's admitting who he's been. This is what Alan Ross says. He says, it's significant that in response to Jacob's request for the blessing, the man asks, what's your name? When one remembers that in the Old Testament one's name is linked to his nature, the point becomes clear. Jacob's pattern of life had been radically changed. In saying his name, Jacob had to reveal his whole nature. Here, the heel catcher, the deceiver, the swindler was caught. And he had to confess his true nature before he could be blessed. He repented in a sense. He repented, he admitted who he'd been, and he said, I need, I need real faith in you. Not nominal believer faith, I need like real faith, because I am that guy. I did, I did fool my brother out of his birthright, and I did steal the blessing of the Father from him. And that's what I've been my whole life. Repentance simply is admitting what God already knows about you. You know that? When we repent to God, He says, hey, you've been this way. And we go, you're right. And he says, you've been doing this. And we go, you're right, I've been doing that. It's not like He doesn't know. So repentance is just agreeing with God about our sin. But it's also turning our back then on the sin and going, I'm turning from that, I'm turning to you, Jesus. I need you. 
That's what we all need. That's what Jacob needed. That's the end of counterfeit gods, is that we would have repentance from idols that do not fulfill and fresh faith in the God of the universe who alone can make us happy and fulfilled. And so David says it this way, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or the woman who takes refuge in him. And God says, if you will accept me, if I will be your God and no other, then he'll pronounce the same blessing that he pronounced over Jesus on us at Jesus' baptism. Remember when Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water, and the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And that's what he says to you and I if we are in Christ. You, my beloved Son, my beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. And with that love, and with that affirmation from the God of the universe, we realize again that we don't need this other stuff. It's not bad stuff, but it's a horrible Savior. We need the one true Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, awaken us again to this reality that you are the pearl of great price. You are the ones, the one that our, our soul craves, that our heart needs. That all this other stuff on the world that you've given us, it's a tool simply to be, using, to be used to glorify you. It's for your glory, but it cannot become our everything. Because the minute it does, everything goes awry. What we really need is you. And so, Father, wake us up again to that reality. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would help maybe somebody who has never believed in you, to believe in you for the first time, and to say, I need God. I don't need anything else. I need Him today. And Father, if they're in this place, help them to repent and place faith in Jesus for the very first time. And Father, for the many's, many of us today who are believers, but who day in, day out, we struggle to put other things before you, to think that they will offer us satisfaction. Lord, help us again today, afresh and anew, just to lay down our idols and place fresh faith in Jesus and say, you, you are all my heart's desire. Father, help us to sing and worship and lift you high and glorify you now and work in our midst. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.